and welcome to the Midweeks. I'm Rob and I'm really grateful you're here today. Okay, so today I want to talk about an apology and I also want to talk about God caring about our hearts more than anything else. And I also want to keep moving along in 1 Corinthians. We'll finish up the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. We'll complete verses 26 through 31. That's what's on the menu, and so why don't we go from here? The apology first. I apologize for something I did last Sunday. I was doing a message, and uh, I was talking about this guy named Michael Ketterer, who's a worship leader who's ended up on American Idol. And uh, you can listen to the message online, the Calvary website, if you want to. But what I had done wrong was that I had said he had five kids, three of his own, two he'd adopted or was fostering, and they had cerebral palsy. When And th- those details were not factual. Um, the, he and his wife have one biological child. They're fostering five, and one of those kids has cerebral palsy, and those fostering kids, I'm not sure how many of them might be adopted or not. So my apology is I really um, messed up those details. I don't think it really changed the the point I was making, and I definitely did not do it intentionally, but I just want to take an opportunity here on the midweeks to clear that up, and uh, Lord willing, I'll do so next Sunday as well. So forgive me. But the point of the last message was to uh, talk about how um, from Ephesians 5.1, God says, um, as beloved children. He says, imitate God as beloved children. And I was talking about the power of imitation and how God wants us to do it because we are his beloved children. I also um, was quoting from 1 Peter where 1 Peter calls us to be obedient children and to reflect God's holiness. So both Peter and Paul there um, doing the same thing. God is loving. God is love. Therefore, as loved children, you too walk in love. And then Peter says, God is holy. And he calls us, he says, you therefore be holy as I am holy. And he says, so as obedient children reflect God's holiness. And so um, that, that particular way, so how do I show God's holiness? Well, you start by obeying him because you're saying you're holy and deserving of obedience and I'm holy to you. And so I obey your will, I obey your words. And that's where it all starts. And so I want to just riff off of that a little bit and just talk about just a really brief reminder that God cares about our heart first. God cares about what's going on inside of us, our character, our motivations, our inner thoughts, our secret world. This is the thing he most cares about us. And that's not to say the only thing. He cares about our behavior. He cares about our speech. But in God's sight, our behavior shows what's going on inside of our hearts. And our speech shows what's going on inside of our hearts. Jesus said it's from the overflow of the mouth that the heart speaks. And some people, you could, in my own mind, some people could think this, but in my own mind, a little lawyer in my mind says, but can't people deceive with their speech? Can't they pretend like something's going on different with their speech? And maybe the Lord would say that, yeah, exactly. So in their heart, they are they have deception. They're willing to deceive other people and they're self-deceived because they think this is okay or it's going to work out or that God um, doesn't care. And so it still comes out of their mouths. Um, crooked speech from crooked hearts. You, uh, it's almost like that's a line from Proverbs or something like that. I bet uh, Solomon would be okay with that. 
But I just want to remind each person who's hearing and remind myself, God cares about my heart first. And that's why, um, one of the reasons why I was talking about using your family to get at your heart. And I was saying, you know, if your family isn't overflowing with joyful honor, joyful obedience, cheerful obedience from the kids, even from a husband and wife, uh, before we kind of crack down with practical behavioral stuff, Let's come back and say, God, is the source of the, the grinding, is the source of the sand in the gears, is the source of the trouble that in my heart, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in your love, I don't believe in the gospel, I don't believe in the cross, I don't believe in your holiness in a way that you want me to. And so you're willing, you're allowing these trials to come to show me what's in my heart so that you can bring healing, correction, and joy. And I think that's the case. You, you know, we can remember in Hebrews, uh, I think it's Hebrews chapter 12, but if it's 13, forgive me, where the apostle, I'm sorry, it, I don't know who wrote it. Uh, the author says, God disciplines those he loves. And he wants to bring up a fr fruit of righteousness. So you could say, you could hear that in a very like outwardly focused just like forms and behavior stuff. But the reality is, is that the discipline the Lord uses, which is pain and sufferings or trials or discomforts, um, these pull back the, the layers of ease that we have over what's really going on inside of ourselves. And they, they expose what's really going on in our hearts because that's where God wants to work. That's where God wants to dwell in our hearts. And that's where God wants to work in our very hearts, the core of who we are. And so he, he allows and wills really hard things. He disciplines us with hard things so that he can get at what's really going on in our hearts so that there can be the righteousness. And by righteousness, I, I don't think we should think, um, not the standing in front of God righteousness, because that's a gift from Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ covering us, the forgiveness of Christ covering us so that we can dwell in God's presence. But there he wants to be true knowledge of God, joyful knowledge of God that overflows in godliness in our lives. That's how I understand it. And so just an encouragement as you're looking at your life, the frustrations, the joys, the successes, the failures, the things that are happening in your home, the things that are happening in your generations. Um, let's start off by going wherever it's rubbing us the wrong way, wherever we're feeling stressed out, maxed out, going, God, I'm going to assume you're after my heart in this somewhere. What do you want to say? What do you want to get at? And sometimes God takes his time because he does things right, not necessarily quickly. But this is the core issue. Among all the things that God is doing, I don't want us to get totally self-absorbed, like every room we walk into, we're the most important person, but out of all the things God is doing, he's getting at our hearts because he cares about our hearts more than, more than simply our money, more than simply how we spend our time, more than simply what we do, especially more than ministry. He cares about people's hearts, who they really are, and he uses our most important relationships and the people we live with to get at our hearts so that we can really know as we work through our stuff that we are beloved children and holy children of God and called to uh, reflect that and act like that and imitate him in the world. Okay, there you go. Now that you're encouraged, now that you're strengthened, now that your, your whole life has met with every answer that you need. 
to be Captain Awesome or Lady Super Duper for the rest of the week. Let's get into scripture specifically from 1 Corinthians. So we've been working through 1 Corinthians. There's, there's this church that's in quite a bit of a mess in a lot of ways. They think they're doing great. There's actually a lot of issues. They had written a letter to Paul asking him some questions, not all of them like um, safe questions. You know, someone can ask you a question sometimes with a barb in it because they think they're going to make you look dumb. I think some of the questions are like that. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, Paul also finds out what's actually going on in the church from the messengers. And so he wants to address the messenger, the report from the messengers first. And the first thing he talks about is uh, pride leading to division and division soaked pride in the church. And so he's been talking about how um, the gospel actually humbles human pride because it's um, whatever any culture really is looking for to be the best. The cross is the opposite of that. So when it comes to wisdom, the cross is foolish. When it comes to miracles and supernatural power, the cross is a curse. When it comes to like wealth and possessions, uh, Jesus died broke. And even what he had, his one robe, the soldiers gambled away. And so, and this cross was God's instrument for revealing his strength and his wisdom in the world. There's nothing smarter than the cross where sinners are reconciled to God. There's nothing more powerful than the cross where sin dies and everlasting resurrection life is acquired. And so he's going to continue going on from here. And he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. These are the very words of God. So you can hear from this passage that Paul is just trying to get his church to become more Christ-focused and God-saturated and just come to the place where they really see that everything's from God and back to God. And, and if anything wonderful happens, it's a gift from God. And so he asks them to consider themselves how they were before Christ came to them in worldly standards. And so that room would have been filled with um, slaves or ex-slaves. It would have been filled with um, the poor. It would have been filled with um, people who did not have a lot of social upwardness, just tons of it. And so he would say, he said to them, like, just remember where you are. You were nothing. And then you came to to church. And then all of a sudden in church, you're going to find reasons to think that you're the best. And so he wants the Christians there to see that it is on purpose that so many people who come to Christ are from the lowest places in societies. And he tells them point blank, God chose foolish people to shame the wise. God chose weak people to shame the strong. He chooses, excuse me, um, the nobodies in order to nullify what the world thinks makes you somebody. And this is This is stunning stuff um, for two reasons. The first is um, because it shows the sovereign side of salvation. I think it really does. Okay, so typically from a human perspective, you can describe how the gospel spreads. 
and how um, people get saved as, you know, a messenger goes out, people hear the message, they think about it, they're impacted by it, and then they respond with faith or they don't. And, you know, not necessarily just in that instant, but sometimes they respond with faith or they don't. And that's kind of a very human perspective of how people get saved. And so sociologically, people might say, you know, the message of Christ and that um, God loves you and that there's eternal life for the lowest of the low. There's something like socially appealing about that. So people who were treated like nothings all of a sudden become something in the sight of God. And so there is that perspective on it. And there's that possible way of reading that. But Paul takes it from the divine perspective, the eternal perspective, and what he, what he says is that the reason so many people who are poor, so many people who are low down on the totem pole, so many of the nothings come to Christ is because God chooses them. And he says to them in the church, you, you individuals, you together as the church, but you individual low totem pole people, God chose because he wanted to... Um, shame the strong. And how I understand that's going to work out is not only do they come into church and necessarily, you know, if people who are stronger or more wealthy or more wise become Christians, they are the baby Christians, whereas the slaves are the are the uh, more mature Christians, you hope, or the ones in longer standing there. But at the end of time, in the final judgment, God's going to reveal the glory of these nothings who are in Christ. And he's going to reveal the nothingness of what was awesome in the eyes of the world, the celebrity, the fame, the power, the victories. He's going to reveal the nothingness of it. And um, those who thought they were somebody apart from Christ are going to lose all honor in the world compared to the glory of those who are made something by the grace of Christ. And so he, so this is the stunning thing. So God is sovereign over it, which is amazing. And, and just the, this is the, would be the second thing, the God mission to destroy human boasting. Okay. This is something I think we need to reckon on. It's not something I've necessarily preached on a lot. It's not something I've ever heard somebody saying, this is my life theology or anything like that, but just Paul revealing, the Holy Spirit revealing that the God of the universe who does love us, he's actually on a mission to undercut all self-reliant, idolatrous, human boasting, every kind of boasting that doesn't find its source in God and its end in God and name the name of God. God has designed the universe to destroy through the cross. And so this is just this thing. So what's the mission of God in the world? And you can rightfully say to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world and save for himself a people for his praise. And that's right. But one of the perspectives of that is to say God's mission in the world is actually to destroy all human pride. God has designed the cross and salvation in Jesus Christ and human history in such a way as to be an assault on human pride. So at the end of history, there will be none left. And it's just, this is just something to think because I fall into human pride very easily. I fall into the um, comparison charts and the social structure thing. I feel the pressure of those things um, as much as anybody, I'm sure. But just to stop and think for a second, whoa, 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 these These accomplishments that we kind of just float around, these ways of comparing each other, these ways of evaluating each other, where you can get on that list and are you succeeding and can have pride or are you not succeeding and can have prideful shame? These lists God has sabotaged through the cross and he has determined that it will all be destroyed and brought to nothing. And so 
why love these things now? When not only will it fade away, but God, God wants to destroy it. He hates these human, merely human ways of promoting pride and boasting. And he displays that he's against them by choosing the nobodies and the nothings to be the treasure of the universe and to be the glorious saints of God robed in the righteousness of Christ. Amazing. All right, so next time we get together, we'll talk in, we'll go head into chapter two, which is going to be wonderful as well. I hope you have a great week. If you're heading into school, I pray you have a great school year. If you're a parent, I pray that it is a blessed time. Don't forget to find out how your kids are doing every single day and love them and give them a hug and treat them like they are the most important people in your life because they are right up there. Be blessed.